0: All right, we are in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 today at verse 6, and we've been journeying there for quite some time, not just in chapter 3, but through both Thessalonian epistles. It's been a, a long journey, I pray a fruitful journey through these letters, but as you think about what Paul has been saying, he's been instructing these believers in some important things, and uh, he's complimented them for a myriad of reasons. They're faithful, they've grown in their faith in a very short amount of time, they are Evangelists, they are people who obey the, the Word of God. In fact, Paul says, I am uh, not only seeing that you are obeying, but have a confidence in the Lord, you will continue to obey those things that we have commanded. But uh, my friends, not all is well in Thessalonica. There are a few problems, as we would expect. Uh, there are some issues that they're dealing with on the second coming. We've looked at that. Uh, there are some other issues with order in the church, and Paul's going to move into those things. And he's going to deal with some people in the church that are not being obedient. How do you deal with that? How does Paul deal with that? And so we want to look at that today. We're going to come to the question about church discipline. What does the Bible say about it? It's not a popular subject to preach on. It's not an easy subject to preach on. But we must preach on it. It's in the Word of God. It's right here, verse 6. Paul's dealing with church discipline. And so we want to see how Paul implemented it how we see it's a biblical principle, etc. So to help us to see the context of the full section, although we're going to really not look at the detail today, but I want us to still see the bigger picture, so it'll help us to understand how this develops. Beginning again at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which He received from us, or which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you in this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, there are a lot of principles there that we need to think about, uh, and a lot of them are dealing with a specific situation in Thessalonica, but. Today we want to look at more of the general principle here of church discipline, that we might understand what the Word of God says on it more generally before we look at why Paul is applying it in this particular situation. Now, as we begin to do that this morning, I want to do it by looking at three points. First of all, a general framework. A general framework. Second of all, a biblical principle. And lastly, a biblical command. A biblical command. So beginning first with this general framework, as I mentioned a moment ago, I'm not going to go through the specifics here today. Uh, The point is not to look at what is going on specifically in Thessalonica today, we'll begin that next Sunday, but to look at what it means to exercise church discipline. What does it mean? Why do we do it? What's the purpose of it? How does the Bible tell us to do it? So those are things we want to look at today because they're important to understanding why Paul is doing what he's doing in the text today. So we're looking at the general principle behind this text. Now, I want to focus on this, and uh, it's a a topic that puts people at dis-ease. It can be an uneasy one. People think, oh, this is a little bit harsh, but it's in the Word of God for a reason, and it's explained to us in the Word of God why it's here and why churches are not not only should uh, exercise it, but are commanded to exercise it. And so we want to look at those things today. So again, there is a problem here. Not everything is as it should be in the church at Thessalonica, which is always going to be true, by the way, on this side of glory. But it becomes a real issue in this congregation. And Paul has dealt with it. He's dealt with it over and over again. uh, And it hasn't been solved. And so Paul writes now this final warning to the church at Thessalonica that they need to get their act together. At least some in the church need to get get their act together and obey what Paul is teaching here. So one thing we want to say off the bat about church discipline is we often think about church discipline as being a response to a particular sin. Well, there is a particular sin that is the impetus of church discipline, but really church discipline progresses because of a lack of obedience and putting ourselves under the Word of God. When the Word of God gives us a command and says to do this, and someone confronts us with the fact that we're not doing it, and we refuse to repent and change, that's when church discipline really advances. And so we need to recognize it's really a refusal to obey the word of God that ultimately drives church discipline. So the question is, what is Paul telling us in this text? Well, there are several things that we need to see because Paul makes it very clear. Go back to the fourth verse here in the chapter and you'll begin to see it. Paul says, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Now, this is the main body of believers in Thessalonica. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you both do. In other words, you are currently doing and will do the things that we command you. Now, Paul has already tied these commands to the teachings, the tradition. And we've talked about what that is. That is not only the gospel. Remember, the New Testament is not collected. This is the second letter of the New Testament written. There is no collected New Testament. So when Paul says the teachings we brought to you, he means the apostolic traditions and the gospel itself. So there are traditions that are not being obeyed, Paul says. Now, to the main body of believers, he says you are obeying and we have confidence in the Lord in you that you will continue to obey. I won't go back through all that we said on that about how Paul's confidence ultimately is not in the Thessalonians, but in the Holy Spirit working to transform the Thessalonians. But he has a confidence that God will continue to work in them and they will continue to obey those things that have been written to them and commanded them in person, those things which are the traditions that we just spoke of. So Paul says, you are obeying. You're doing what you're called to do. But notice as we move into today's text, there's something different said. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... That you withdraw from every brother who walks, remember, walk is manner of life, disorderly, not in order, not in keeping with what we've commanded you, and not according to that same tradition, which he, the one who is walking disorderly, received from us. In other words, he who is not obeying. Couldn't be clearer, could it? There are those in Thessalonica, the majority, who are obeying. Paul says we're proud of you continue doing what you're doing but there is a portion of the church a minority I do believe of the church that Paul says are not obeying they've been told they've been reminded they've been rebuked they've been uh, taught on this and they continue to disobey and Paul says okay in such a case what is the church to do well Paul tells us Paul tells us again what they are to do look at what he says he says first of all that they are to disfellowship with these believers. Now, my friends, that is a strong reaction. But Paul says a necessary reaction. And I want us to think in a moment about why Paul sees it as so necessary. But again, as we look at this text, we shouldn't miss that. There is an example immediately of church discipline. You are to withdraw fellowship from those believers. If they have been warned through the proper steps of discipline, they refuse to repent, they refuse to change, they refuse to get uh, walking in an orderly manner. According to the Word of God, Paul says you should separate from them. Now, my friends, that is serious. And the Word of God is implying to us that it, we should consider it serious. It is the last resort we have as a church to tell a brother or sister, you need to think about what you're doing. You need to walk in an orderly manner according to the word of God. You are living in disobedience in such a way that the church feels it's so serious. We must withdraw fellowship from you if you don't change, if you don't repent. And so again, the point here is this is serious. If it strikes us as, as serious, it is serious. And Paul wants us to recognize that. So first of all, you see this example clearly in the text of church discipline. But I want you to notice something else. It's not optional. It's not optional. Look what Paul says. Paul has just did a, done a dividing line in the church of those who obey and those who disobey the commands of God. And now look how he starts this. We command you. We command you. Paul's saying this is another moment of obedience or disobedience in the Lord. We command you, brethren, what is right? Will you do this? Of course, Paul has confidence that they will. But we should note, it is a commandment. It is not optional. We must obey what the Lord tells us here. And He tells us, in such a case, we must take this drastic measure. And that brings us to another point here that's clearly there. It's not Paul making this up. But Paul says, I base this authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave the church this authority. Now, We're going to turn in a moment to where you can find the literal words of Jesus saying this. But we shouldn't miss it. This is not mean Paul has come and twisted Christianity. No, Jesus himself said this, gave clear instruction that this was to be done. And so again, Paul is simply saying, I'm enforcing what our Lord told us to do. If a brother will not repent, will not change, is bringing shame upon the congregation or whatever it may be, then we must do this. We must do this. It is not optional. We do it under the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King. We serve only under His authority. I have no authority to be up here preaching this, except that the Lord organized the church and called leaders for the church. And so, my friends, again, Paul says this is done in the Lord. It's granted to the church by the Lord. It's a command is apostolic, to be sure. But again, it is based in the clear command of Christ. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, you can also notice that the, the underlying concern here, which I said we're not going to get into today. Uh, we read what it is. You can, Most of you know what it is. Um, we'll come back to it next Sunday. But it's been festering for a while. And in cases where it would get to this point in church discipline, they have been festering for a while. As we'll see, there is... A moment where a person comes and discusses it and then it's brought with a few people and then again it's brought to the whole church. Here Paul says, I addressed this when I was with you. When he writes the first letter and he mentions it, he's mentioning something he's clearly already discussed with them about before and then he wrote the first letter as a follow-up warning. It's still not been solved. Get your act together. And now he comes to the second letter and he's like, okay, we're following the proper steps. This is being addressed to the entirety of the church. Fix it, or these brothers are to be removed from fellowship. My friends, Paul doesn't take that lightly. He doesn't take that lightly. Paul knows how serious a step that is, but Paul says it is the next necessary step. And so Paul tells them that it is. And again, notice that even though this has festered for a long time... Ultimately, it is up to the individuals involved if they want to resolve it. They are the ones that can simply repent and obey what the Bible says, but they're refusing to and wanting to say we are believers in good standing uh, with the church, even though we are opposing what the Scriptures actually teach. And so again, uh, Paul says this has to be dealt with. So again, they need to listen to this. In fact, Paul says in verse 14... Uh, He makes this clear, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, Paul says, so in other words, this final warning, if they do not obey it, what does he say? Note that person, that word means mark them, it means make a a mental note or almost a written note of who that person is, and then do what? Do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. One of the points of church discipline is to make it clear where the church stands on issues. We as a church say, that's a bridge too far. Or that's incompatible with Christian living and the testimony of Christ in the community. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 5, but Paul says there, you're allowing a sin in your church to go on that the the Corinthians would blush at. Now these were, if you know anything about Corinth, it was like the hotbed of sin in the days of Paul. People would use as as a slander, you're a Corinthian to say you're a man of no morality whatsoever. Paul says the Corinthians would blush at this and you would let it go on inside your church. So again, Paul says you must make clear to these brothers what is acceptable and what is not acceptable that they may uh, know and that they may not ever claim, no one told me. No one told me. Paul wanted to make sure in his ministry uh, that he had no guilt for the actions of others. He said, I will tell you the truth Therefore, your blood is not upon my head. Now again, as we walk through this, we see that Paul is giving this warning and saying, if they won't listen to this final command, this is the action that must be taken. But I also want to to make another point here. Because look how Paul words this. If you move into verse 15, this is not to be done harshly or in hate or in revenge or spite. He says, do not count him as an enemy. Your goal here is not to uh, destroy a person, but to reconcile that person back to the body of Christ. That's the hope, that they would recognize the error of their ways, repent of it, and draw back into the body of Christ and be reconciled into the body of Christ. That's what Paul's hope and aim is here. Paul wants these believers who just refuse to do what they are commanded to to recognize that, you know, it's a whole lot better to repent of this sin And be a part of the fellowship of believers. And so, my friends, uh, that is the aim. And we need to recognize that. It's not fun. This process is not fun. Just as discipline in our homes or lives or whatever area you're dealing with that you need to discipline yourself or discipline others, it is not fun. It's not fun. Uh, Paul gives the example, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians of the athletes down at the track who are, what, temperate in all things. In other words, they self-discipline themselves. I saw a video with Allison of an athlete the other day that said their favorite breakfast is bacon, eggs, and pancakes. And the interviewer said, when was the last time you had it? They said, two years ago. Their favorite breakfast. They had not eaten it in two years. Why? Pancakes are not helping me toward my goal of becoming the greatest athlete in the world. Now, what is Paul making the point? If an athlete is is that temperate, that self disciplined in all manners that they might receive a crown, why aren't we taking our walk more seriously? So Paul says in this case, brothers, the goal is that we need to recognize there is a need for discipline, a need for self-discipline, but in the church there must be discipline. And so again, Paul says it is for a godly purpose, and that purpose is training in righteousness. Training in righteousness that we all uh, may walk in a worthy manner of the calling with which we have been called. So Paul wants us to think about all those things, but we also want to recognize that Paul didn't pull this practice out of thin air. Paul didn't say, you know, I'm really not happy with the way things are going in Thessalonica. Uh, there's some believers that aren't quite doing what I've commanded, and I really get offended when people don't obey me. So I've got to think of some way to really force them to do what I want. That isn't what's happening here. Paul is basing this on what he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is putting forward a biblical principle. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure many of you do, turn to Matthew chapter 18. Now this is an interesting chapter. Matthew 18 is a, is a chapter I would recommend. If you have a little time this afternoon, sit down and read this whole chapter. But as you read it, you'll see there are many things here about how we come to Christ. He says as children... Like children. I mean, trusting in faith. Then there's a warning of those who would lead little ones astray. And then there's all these warnings on sin that are very serious. We've heard them before. If your your foot or your hand or your eye would cause you to sin, cast it out. Saying that's how serious it is. It would be better to, to live without a hand or a foot or an eye than to enter into hell fire. And then as you come down a little bit further... There's a clarification given here by our Lord that His mission is actually a mission of reconciliation. It's to bring people to the Father, to to collect the lost sheep and to bring them home. That's what He's here to do. Don't make a mistake about it. He's not coming with this heavy, hard-handed message to, to drive people away. He's bringing this message to call those who would be saved. And then He comes to this text in Verse 15 that talks about the very thing we're talking about. He says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Do you notice the first step here is not to embarrass a person, it's to go to them in confidence, personally, one on one, not to air it out publicly, but to go to them individually and say, Brother or sister, here's where I think a wrong has been done. To bring it to them. Make them aware of it. Maybe they didn't even know that they had done something wrong. Maybe they didn't realize that they had crossed over line. Maybe they do. Maybe they need to know that it hurt you or was offensive in some way or had harmed the body of Christ whatever it is the Bible says or Jesus himself says here uh, go to that person and tell them between you and him alone. This is an opportunity in private to reconcile the situation. And look It's with the hope of reconciliation. Look at the very next thing. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. It's solved. How many times has that happened in your life? Maybe somebody's come to you and said that you said something that hurt them or something that caused a problem and you didn't realize it and you just said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And it's over. It's reconciled. It's done. That is the model here. The hope would be whatever it is that when it's brought to your attention, you would say, that's wrong. I repent of it. It's no longer going to be a problem. That's the hope. But what if it isn't the end of it? So Jesus continues, verse 16. But if he will not hear, that means if he will not listen, he will not uh, try to reconcile, he will not repent to whatever the problem is, then take with you one or two more. The idea here is you could also be in the wrong. You need someone to go with you to judge what's going on here, to hear this uh, spoken about to judge it. Now, it could very well be the person that you're going to's at fault. There may be times that somebody says, well, I don't think your motive's the best here, or your what you did didn't help situation here. Maybe there's reason for two people to repent. Oftentimes there is. But whatever the case, there are witnesses here, third parties, but notice just a few. This is not aired out publicly, and the people you would call to go with you would be trustworthy people who would not look to embarrass anyone in the situation that would hope that it would be dealt with in private right there dealt with and done forever. No notice of the church that this happened uh, wouldn't need to be. It's been resolved, reconciled. There's no division at all. That again is the aim. No division in Christ Jesus. Notice what he says. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. As we're moving forward, there needs to be a record. This is what the scriptures are telling us. Why? Because if he refuses to hear them, that's assuming the person that you've gone to is in error, then you bring it to the church. My friends, that is not a happy step. But Paul says it is a necessary step. If he refuses to hear even the church... This means the collective body of believers say, you're in the wrong on this. Even if that happens, the collective body together say, with one voice we speak on this matter. And he says, I don't care. What does does Jesus here say to do? Let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. Separate from him. My friends, that is not a light step. That's why every care is taken that it not be necessary. But if there is a brother or sister who will not listen to the Word of God, Jesus and Paul say, it's the step you've got to take. It's the step you've got to take. Now, isn't it amazing that as you... Follow this down, even to verse 21. Peter comes along and asks the question, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? That's what the rabbis say. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now there's some numerology at play here, we know. But again, the idea that that Jesus is getting at here is the goal is restoration. You know, the the way Peter frames the question and the rabbis taught it, it was often like, how many times do I have to forgive somebody before I don't have to anymore? And Jesus says you're asking the question from the wrong direction. Your goal shouldn't be to get past the stage of forgiveness, but it should be to extend forgiveness as long as possible, that if a person is coming in true repentance and reconciliation, they don't have to wonder if you're there to meet them halfway. That's the point. And so again Jesus says listen our goal our heart's desire should be reconciliation. And so again the emphasis over and over is there. But this can't be a token forgiveness. It can't be just like oh okay well we'll forgive. The forgiveness is is to meet uh it meets repentance. That's what I'm trying to say. It meets repentance. When repentance, contrition occurs, that's when forgiveness is offered. That's what the Bible says. You forgive someone as often as they come to you truly repenting of their sin, of their wrongs. We are to receive them, uh, welcome them, and reconcile to them. Now, again, notice here there is a sin that begins the process. In this case, there's disorderly living in Thessalonica. That's what begins the process. But what drives the process is no longer that sin itself, but disobedience. Disobedience to the Word of God and to the revelation of God in His Word. Now, if you want to see uh, this again, just very quickly, we're not going to go through the whole passage, but I'm just marking some places that you might want to look later, Uh, and that is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And like I said, I'm not going to go into it in depth, but I just want to make clear here, this is what I was talking about earlier. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named amongst the Gentiles. He means, in your community. Those outside the church wouldn't accept this kind of behavior, but you do, Paul says. Now what does Paul say to do? He says, hand him over to Satan. What he means by that is, make it clear that he's no longer a part of your fellowship. Drive him out of the fellowship. Let him know that this kind of behavior is incompatible with Christian living and witness in the community. Now, Paul doesn't say drive him out uh, there that he might be lost, but with the hope that he might be saved. Paul says, in this case, try to reconcile them as a brother. Try to reconcile them as a brother. Really quick, what are the three reasons the Bible gives us for church discipline? First of all, division. Those that would seek to have division. This is not godly division. There is such a thing as godly division. Paul says sometimes there must be division that the approved side would be noted. Sometimes there must be division to know who stands with the people of God. But we're talking about what you find in Romans chapter 16 here. People who are divisive for other purposes. I think Paul gives in that example that they're trying to build a following for themselves. Things like that. Must watch out for that. Sin, 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, there you'd find examples of sin. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, you see this very principle put in place uh, over heresy. I want to very, very quickly just quote Paul here on it. He's talking to Timothy, he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, "...which some, having rejected," meaning those teachings, that truth, "...concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, the very thing he threatened to do in in, uh, Corinth, that they may learn not to blaspheme." Again, even with these two brothers who are causing discord and problems in the church, his aim is not only to protect the church but that they would learn not to do what they're doing. That they would recognize it has no place in the body of Christ. That you cannot continue in this sin and us accept you as part of this body. So again, uh, that is important to recognize. The aim is to, is to, of course, make the sinner aware of the problem, but also, by the way, to restore them. That they would repent of that sin and restore them. It's also to protect the congregation of Christ from the toxins that we're dealing with of sin And division and error. And lastly, by the way, Paul is greatly concerned, as you saw in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that the testimony of Christ in the community be good. What Paul is saying is in Corinth, the church is getting a foul reputation. If you understood the reputation of Corinth, that would shock you. That would shock you. Think of the most sinful city you can think of. And think if the church there had a worse reputation than the city does. Paul says something is wrong. This has to be addressed. If people don't see the church as holier than the worst city in the Greek world, then he says, my friends, we've got no hope of telling anybody that this is the place where God's people abide. And so Paul says these things are important. They are biblical commands and they are important. But I want to close with this final point and it's my closing. That this is more than simply important. It's commanded by the Lord. Commanded by the Lord. It's not our right to decide if we want to do it or if it's comfortable to do it. We are commanded as a church to do it. It's a command of God. It's interesting. If you go back to the 16th century and the Reformation, they gave us three marks that define a church. If you do not have these three marks, they said you're not a church. And they were the right preaching of the Word of God, the administration of the the sacraments of God, and the implementation of church discipline. Any one of those missing, you're not a church. Now, you're dealing with uh, the titans of church history here who interpreted the scriptures to say that very thing. Martin Luther certainly believed that. All of the reformers believed that. And my friends, it is passed down to us, I think is evidently true. Because I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones one time say that if you go back and look at the 19th century, he said the seeds of the fall of the church in the 20th century were planted in the 19th century church. He said as liberalism creeped into the churches, uh, particularly in Europe, right, Germanic uh, liberalism and that sort of thing, textual criticism, all those different avenues, he said they didn't deal with it. The churches did not deal with it through church discipline like they should have. That they allowed it to fester and grow into a problem. And he said, we're dealing with the, the crop that was sown by churches not doing what they were called by God to do and make it clear that some things are incompatible with the Christian uh, life and incompatible with Christian theology and belief. And so, again, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if churches had been exercising discipline in the 19th century, we wouldn't have many of the problems we have today. How did they avoid it, by the way? Century upon century, the church in the 1500s and 1600s and 1700s and 1800s seemed to hold pretty pure to doctrine. How did they do it? They exercised church discipline. My friends, uh, many people say, well, this was the failing of the church in the 20th century. But I think we see the, the seed sown even earlier than that. Certainly you can see in the 20th century that nobody was practicing church discipline. In fact, uh, there's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary who uh, was talking about one time he had come and done a preaching series uh, through the commands uh, of the Bible about churches, concerning churches, so ecclesiology. And he said that one of the chairmen of the deacons came up to him afterward and said, I don't like what you said tonight. He said, do you think I said it was about churches? He said, do you think I said something that wasn't biblical? He said, no, it's biblical. I just didn't like it. My friends, this is what's gotten us into the problem we're in as churches today. How do we decide how we run ourselves as a church? By the commands of the Lord who the church belongs to or by our wisdom, our fallen human wisdom? My friends, I think it's clear. And so I would ask what Martin Lloyd-Jones asked, and that was probably 70 years ago. He said, what would we expect to happen? if we just say, well, you know, God tells us how to, how to do things, but we're wiser than God. We're wiser than He is. What would we expect to happen? Except calamity. Calamity. Look around at the modern church today. Totally irrelevant to the world. Nobody thinks they need it. We have no testimony that anybody can point to. Church in the West is largely just a phenomenon amongst those who still believe. My friends, we were warned that would happen if we turned our back on what the scriptures were commanding us.